You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Rick and Sean. Rick was waving. Uh, we never record video, but we probably should one of these days. Which scare um, people. Yeah, <laughs> We, we would have to put it in the horror section because I am so ugly, I would scare all the fans away. <laughs> well, on this episode, it's going to be a lot of fun because we are going to talk about art and art direction and, as, you know, all of the things that we can think of that relate to marketing because art is a huge part of any any crowdfunding campaign success. If, you, if you're running a game, you're going to, I mean, you're going to run into the challenge of, it, you know, is your art enough to attract backers, right? And and get some serious attention. Can, can I um, play devil's advocate? Yes. Oh, yeah. You, you always do anyways. <laughs> I'm the devil. Diab- they call me Diablo here at the office. What about Kickstars that have no art? You know, like, uh, what, what's his name? Is it Sanderson? With his oh, yeah. 40 million, whatever it is now, uh, Kickstarter for just four books. <laughs> yes, I, I will say there there are exceptions to every rule. But this week there was something else that that really took my attention, which was you know we had a, a meeting you know really more you know on the subject of art and art direction, and um, you know we gave uh, some advice to uh, one of our clients, and I thought that it was just it really made for a great discussion topic, and so I wanted to kind of really just push the subject. We've also here. talked about it on the past two episodes, which I've ended landed cutting out because it was sort of a detraction from the topics we were talking about and like, okay, well, we brought it up twice. We may as well cover it uniquely (laughs) in an individual podcast. So let's do this. Yes. Okay. So first thing you need good art. If you want to fund your Kickstarter or, or GameFound campaign or whatever crowdfunding system you're using Kickstarter or GameFound is the only way you're going to get a game funded. Correction. You need great art. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's game on tabletop as well. There are other crowdfunding platforms, but yes, you need great art. And uh, Rick, uh, I mean, El Diablo, what was your devil's advocate statement that you made uh, about the something about D and D, some D and D reference? Oh, with the eye of the beholder, because uh, Andrew said you know beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and I'm like, well, you know, in Dungeons and Dragons, the beholder has I don't know, is a hundred eyes? I don't know. There's he's got a lot of eyes. He has like D twenty. There's eyes. a lot. Yeah, he's got a lot of eyes on you, so you got to poke them all out. But yeah, like like uh, Sean was saying. I, uh, it's got to either be, in fact, I'll, I'll just add a little more to it. It's either got to be great art or no art at all. How about that? Mm. See, that sounds like a spectrum to because me. bad art's just going to make it worse. Yeah. Yes, that's true. I'll say that uh, there is this notable exception, which is the Brandon Sanderson book campaign that is just taking Kickstarter by storm right now. It does have some art. It does, uh, you know, yeah. like in a video. And does it? I'll have to look. Yeah, but it's not really, you know. It's got book cover art as well. You know, if his book covers were like, I don't know, like a hand-drawn, badly hand-drawn picture, you know, (laughs) I I think a lot of first-time backers probably wouldn't be too excited about the project. But, you know, he's got some pretty good graphic design on those covers. He could have drawn a stick figure. He's got a universe. Yeah, he's got a universe that that people love to read. I even have a board game uh, by Brandon Sanders. It's... um, the Stormlight Archive, Call to Adventure by Brotherwise Games. That's I like that one, but uh, very fun. Uh, even better book series if you've so, read. Andrew, you've got a big stack of board games behind you on, on a shelf. 
are any games on that shelf? Do any of them just have horrible art? Let me look. Munchkin's guess who bad. has terrible art? I really hate the art. Of guess who? Uno. That's from my kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, all of these games, for the most part, they if um, unless it's like a party game, they their art is meant to impress. And one thing beyond all else, when you look at games like this, you can see that the art direction is purposeful. And there's, you know, usually an idea behind the art as, you know, that, that unifies all of the individual pieces so that it feels like one single game, which is in and of itself a very important point. A lot of first time artists or first time designers, they try to save money with art. There are ways to do it and there are ways that just diminish the quality of the product. And there are a lot of pitfalls to you know, to kind of going down the path of paying for your own art and self-publishing. But one of them is certainly trying to save money on your art. I, I consider for the most part, when you try to save money on art, you are being penny wise and pound foolish, as my mother would always say. But it's a wise woman. Yes. So I think that the, you know, the first, maybe the first problem we could talk about is just trying to save money on your art. A lot of, especially a lot of first time designers, they really have no idea about how much it's going to cost. And they're very concerned with the, the cost of, of their art. They want to make a great game and they just don't want to get raked over the coals by art. Sometimes I think this happens because of actually, this happens because of bad game design. People have gone on and they've just created a game without any limitations. So when they look at the manufacturing, okay, and I need all these components to make this game and therefore I need all this art and they've actually designed a game that they can't afford to make. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really what they should do is start small. Maybe instead of having like a six-player game, it's only a two-player game and therefore you have less characters, less art, and you you build it and you build a game within your means. And this is where I, I like to talk a little bit about objectivity because mm -hmm. As you design a game, you become attached to it. You love certain characters and certain elements of it. Especially if it's your first one, it's your baby. So then if it comes to a stage where it's, it's too expensive to manufacture and you have to cut things back, you're going to be less objective if you've already paid money for art. So this is, you want to be very careful not to spend money on art until your game's fully designed because you could get to a stage where, oh no, I need to get rid of some components or certain things, but I've invested money in art and having that lack of objectivity to make that decision is going to impact the, the final product and then also your pocket. And then it's going to have a long-term effect on the entire campaign because you're sort of burning, burning income. So I've, I've worked with a number of artists now. One of the most common uh, complaints from the artists themselves about projects, about projects that they've done in the past is that the project themselves or itself will never come to fruition because the designer that was in charge of the project will basically spend their budget on the art and request changes and other things like that. All of those things cost money and eventually they run out of the ability to finish their project because they changed it too much. It's really common in the, just in the industry to have somebody that has a real passion for their the uh, universe that they created and want to see it come to life. And you put in a ton of money into your art for various elements and, you know, something is not quite right. So you request the artist to change over and over and over again until you run out of money. 
in essence. This is more common than you'd think. So, and it's, and it's also why you have video editors in the film industry, because when directors and actors and whoever on set, it might take them all day to get a particular shot and they become emotionally attached to that shot. Like, I don't know, it took us all day to get that shot or, you know, so-and-so like broke their leg. They, we have to put that in the film. And then that clouds their judgment when, when you go to the edit room. So if you've had someone who's been on set, who's then editing the film, they can make some bad decisions because they're taking their emotional attachment to certain shots and putting it in the film when really you need an objective source who doesn't have any of that emotional resonance with those shots. And then you can sequence them correctly as the audience is going to perceive them. And that's, that's, I think that's the key to finding, to developing your game and also finding good art is trying to find some level of objectivity. How would you determine if your art is good? Because subjectively you could think this looks great, but then how can you actually get an objective view of how people perceive this art? So the, the first thing is it's really the, the, you know, there, we should make a distinction between two different roles. You've got the artist and you've got the art director. And those are not necessarily the same. In fact, not, they're oftentimes not the same. The artist is, you know, somebody who has a particular style and the art director is somebody who needs to find the correct artist for the project, needs to determine what type of style they're going for. And that, you know, they need to seek out the, the artist with the skill set and manage the relationship with that person, make sure they're getting the right art make sure they're quality checking the art and make, you know, making sure that it fits with the card game or board game or whatever it is. The artists themselves, they're responsible for doing what the art director tells them to do, right? That's oftentimes success as far as the, in, in a way, it's kind of like employee employer relationship. You know, you, even though you're employing a freelancer who is an artist that, you know, they want to simply please their person that's paying them the money to do the thing. So they're going to follow your direction as best they can. Now, what a lot of the time people, you know, artists rather the, with the art director, I'll say oftentimes is the game designer because the, you know, if you're self-publishing you, you're probably a one man show if it's your first project or one woman show and the, you know, the art direction falls upon your shoulders. You know, if you're a more established company, there's somebody that has the job of being the art director. That's never an artist unless the artist is on payroll. You know, what everybody wants though, is they want to find that artist that will take ownership of their project and, uh, you know, their art and say, Hey, no, this is, you know, I, I, as the artist, this is what my vision is. And I need to see it look like this or that, you know, everybody wants somebody that will take ownership of a project like that, that will be able to say, you know, for example, you know, in deliverance, I've got my angels and my artists uh, that I've worked for for over two years or worked with for over two years will tell me no sometimes. They'll tell me, no, 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 we can't do that. We have to do this because of X, Y, Z. And it's always some element that is related to the universe. If we want to be consistent with the angels, then we have to feather their wings like this or whatever. And that type of relationship is possible, but you really need to develop. I mean, you need to work with an artist for a long time. and in all likelihood, that's probably not going to be the way that most relationships function. You're going to need to give the artist direction and they're going to do what it is that you've said to the best of their ability. And the quality that you get is most oftentimes the sum of that artist's experience plus the clarity of what you asked for. 
and the the cost can can range wildly. But I don't think I even answered your question. What was your question? <laughs> I, I think what we're, we've been trying to say is uh, uh, only build what you can afford. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, I just, in fact, in, in my case, I think my game would just be one card. That's all I can afford. I can only follow <laughs> like one card art. In fact, one card game, one card. And that would make sell a that. great crowdfunding nerds community challenge on our Facebook page. I think we should do that for a one month challenge is to have just for creativity, have those on there who wants to participate, try yep. to make a game using one card. I mean, you could use little markers and stuff too, but one card game just to see. I think that'd be a great uh, creativity challenge. Now, I was going to ask um, for the for those listeners who are listening, they may not know what kind of budget they may need for art. And I was going to ask Andrew, but you know, this guy like spares no expense. He's like Mister Jurassic Park over there uh, with his uh, multi million dollar uh, art industry. But I mean, what should our average listener? What kind of budget do you think they should? What kind of range? should they look at or think of when when building their game there are answers to this question that, that vary you know you can find you can find rates for things like card frames and you know like for example like $375 for a card frame you know which is more of a graphic design thing and then per illustration you can range from like 50 to you know common to be like 100 to $150 and it 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 depends but i think that from a, you know, a, a business perspective, I, I really love what Sean originally said about making a game that you can afford. The first thing is if you make a game with like 190 unique card or unique illustrations on, on, on your cards, I mean, that's going to be expensive. If you pay 25 bucks in illustration or a hundred dollars for an illustration or a thousand, I mean, either way that it, it, it's probably going to break the bank if you're a first time publisher. I mean, 25 bucks in illustration, probably be stick figures, which is fine if it's like a cyanide and happiness campaign, but they, uh, you know, which is just like a silly comic, just as, as a general rule, you need to really consider what does the game need? I find that when people pay for art too early, when they've when they've been kind of playtesting and they're actively paying for art as they're playtesting and changing their game, that is probably one of the worst times to begin paying for art uh, because things change. You can have like, you know, 900 cards with unique illustrations, but eventually you're going to figure a way to boil that down to get that same feeling out of 100 cards, right? So it's very important to do your game development first before you start paying money right if you know and i don't know more realistic example let's say 150 cards versus 110 the 110 cards if it gives you the same exact experience of the game with 150 cards then it's going to cost you you know whatever it is 35 percent less right uh to actually make that make that product it's marketing and research in a way in fact let me I was, I was talking to andrew earlier before we started the podcast about one of our clients who has a site that has over two thousand pages on it two thousand pages however only nine of those two thousand pages bring in 90 percent of that traffic so we were looking at hey you know the best thing for 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 his budget and for his money would be to just to build the nine pages first and then work out from there and i think uh when you're planning your game 
like I think that's what Andrew was trying to say is the same thing is, you know, you may start out with all this, but you may find out that 90% or 80% of the core game is actually only involved in like a third of those cards or a fourth of those cards. And you can just sort of whoop, take them out and that would save you on costs. I think another thing where, where, you know, you might think, oh, a certain artist is expensive, but it's going to reduce the cost of a lot of other things that you might not have accounted for. So an example, we have a client, uh, Bedouin Games, they've created a board game called The Flood and they got, they just have a phenomenal art for their game and they got AAA artists who like worked on big IPs and video games. I think uh, one was Skyrim as, as far as I remember correctly. And he said that they had to wait six months until this person was available. And they waited. They waited for this person to be available and they did the art and it shows. And currently we're running their ads and their average cost per lead is a dollar and 20 cents. And there's not much information on their landing page, but because the art is just so, it kind of brings you into the world. It kind of captures what the game's about so well, people are, are sold. They're, they're, they, they get on board with the idea. So waiting for those artists can be very beneficial to your overall campaign because it's going to lower, it could potentially lower the cost per lead and it get, it's going to help people get excited about your project. In the end, that's what matters to us as marketers is that it's easy to get, you know, your, your end consumer to buy into your idea and, you know, and actually back your project. You know, that's going to, I mean, if you have awesome art that connects with your audience, that's going to just make our job a lot easier. And it's going to increase the, we'll say the uh, top end of what your campaign, your crowdfunding campaign can do, you know, how much money you can make, how much of an audience you can build and how excited you can get your backers. It's just going to increase the, the the top end of what's possible. And I think that's a, a great example of penny wise and pound foolish. You know, a lot of people are like, well, you know what, this is all I can afford. I can't afford any more than $5 per illustration. And to that, I just simply respond like, are you ready to, to, to actually self publish a game then? You know, I mean, it's, not like it used to be where you could go to Kickstarter with an idea and say, you know, when I get enough money to, you know, then I'll hire artists and make this game. You now have to come to Kickstarter or GameFound with your game looking like it's in a finished state. You know, it, it doesn't need to be 100% finished, but you need to be able to put your 3D renders together or, you know, have a company put your 3D renders of your game together and have it actually look like, like it really is finished. But, you know, another thing I'll mention is that if you want to save money and you, you hire a cheap artist, that artist can ghost you. It's much more common to get ghosted, which means your artist up and disappears and you can't communicate with them anymore. And they've absconded with the money that you paid them. If they're cheap, then, I mean, everybody has to eat. And if they don't have enough money to eat, they're going to find more work. You know, if you didn't pay them enough, then that's, I'm not sure if that's their bad or yours. But Andrew, you, you're 100% right. The barrier to entry has, the ceiling has become far higher for Kickstarter. And I think one thing maybe for creators, if it's helpful for them, is go to Kickstarter and think about the, the pledges that you're going to ask for and the amount of money you're going to ask for. Then look at the site and see what other people are doing for that same price because that is your competition. And look at the quality of art. That's your competition. Like, is your game going to stand up against these games? 
what's going to make it unique what's going to make it why why would someone back your game instead of this game that's just currently on kickstarter which has this amazing art loads of backers fully funded that's the arena which you're entering entering you need to be prepared to enter that arena sharpen your sword and you know, wax your shield whatever and be prepared for the the onslaught that is your kickstarter campaign see what it did there to those analogies that was amazing <laughs> wax your shield i heard wax your snowboard because it would be so shiny that when the sun Sharp hits it you just, just blind your enemies with your shiny shield yeah and that's a great point um like like you're saying it, you know kickstarter used to be like oh here's a stick figure drawing and wow i funded in one day and yeah it's not that anymore in fact i'm gonna have to like downgrade to like step starter or something because i'm not <laughs> uh, a big funny. kickstarter world <laughs> yeah no it used to be that you, you know you had an idea you present it and they you know back in like 2012 or 2013 your game would fund on day 18 of 30 and then it would catch fire and then all of a sudden you'd be at like 600 funding uh, by the end of your campaign. And that's just kind of the way it was. Now your campaign either funds or doesn't, you know, within the first 48 hours. Um, if it's close, yes, some, you know, sometimes people will fund over the course of 10 or, or, or 15 days, but that's much less common than it used to be. And now it's almost like, you know, you just need a, you need a, a crowd. You can't afford to just make a thing and present it to the world and, you know, not have done your marketing. And, and uh, so I don't know, it's a, it's, it's definitely a different landscape than it used to be. It used to be a lot cuter too. Cause um, these little kids would come on and be like, here's my crayon drawing of a dragon. That's going to be in my upcoming board game. Please sponsor me. And it was, you know, it was more, the, the platform was more innocent. Now it's like super duper swear suit professional, you know, know your stuff platform. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's true. Very true. So, so back to my original question: How do you know if your art is good? Do you ask your community? Is that how you gauge from their feedback if the art is good? Do you ask a, a friend who's just like a kind of arty kind of graphic designer type person? How do you know if your art is good? Okay, so this is it's a loaded question, but I'll I'll do my best to kind of answer in in the best way possible without going completely off track. Um, and this would be a good question. It'd be a good question to ask on the Facebook group. We should actually ask. Yeah, that. absolutely. I think that the answer is, is quite open-ended, but there are, there are a couple of things that you can. So what I try to do with questions like this is I try to say, there are certain things you can't control. Um, for example, the general opinion of a person looking at a, a piece of art, but there are things that you can control. And those are the things that we should focus on. So the first thing is if you have, I mean, there are, are amateur artists and their professional artists and you can tell the difference first thing is you should use a professional and if it's an amateur you know meaning somebody who doesn't do art for a living that just does it in their spare time you know there are those diamonds in the rough out there but uh it's not not nearly as common so i think that first of all the things you can control number one paying a fair wage to your artist the artist won't you know a good artist won't take a poor wage. They, they kind of know what they're worth. And hiring a professional artist is the first step in making art that's good. Second thing, how do you know if your art is good? The art direction should be clear. So you, you really need to think through what is my game going to look like? Why is it going to look like that? And you know choose your art style and make sure that it's consistent. I think that 
inconsistent art, meaning that, you know, if you had two different artists designing, you know, let's just say one artist designs the good guys, another artist designs the bad guys, you know, they paint the good guys and bad guys. Uh, the good guys are going to look different than the bad guys. And, uh, you know, in your, in, in your game, in this random hypothetical example, and that's going to be noticeable. And uh, I, I think that that's, that's not good. You know, I've got multiple artists for deliverance, but one artist is designing all my characters. One artist is designing all of the map tiles, uh, you know, the boards that, you know, show locations and whatnot. And they are different. They're different perspectives and that kind of thing. And I think that that's a more appropriate use of multiple artists than, than character, you know, multiple artists designing characters. And you also uh, have a harmonious color palette. So all those artists are using the same colors. You don't have some artists you just kind of like throwing in their own colors. So everything yeah. blends. So it looks like, even though they're different artists, mm -hmm. all the, the, the color scheme all matches. So it's unified. Right. And that's actually something we did early on. We came up, you know, my original idea, I, I didn't really understand when I started Deliverance and uh, paying for art and that kind of thing. I had this idea. Aquaman just came out, um, the DC Aquaman. I loved that movie. It was so awesome. But what I was so impressed by was that they used a limited color palette. And if you watch that movie or watch, you know, many excellent movies, many superhero movies, you'll find that there are limited color palettes where certain colors are used for good guys, certain colors are used for bad guys, certain colors are used just in general and other colors and, and hues are avoided. I don't know, it, it adds depth in, in design. It makes it look beautiful. So we use a lot of blues uh, for bad guys, a lot of golds and whites for good guys. And and we kind of avoid certain colors like purples and, and things like that. And uh, it, it's really helped out other artists that have jumped on our project when I just simply give them the color palettes of, you know, these are the colors that we use, you know, and it's like, um, and use the color wheel. If you're not sure about colors and which ones are harmonious, which ones are analogous and they, they work together, you can use the color wheel, just Google it. It's easy. Just put in the HTML code for the color and it'll just pop out. These are the colors that work with this. And it's the yep. whole science behind which colors go together. It's actually based off nature, a lot of it. So if you look at nature, a lot of certain colors go together. So people are just basically taken that and put it in computers and you can just pop it out. Mm -hmm. So that's a good place yeah. to start if you're kind of thinking of colors for your game. Yep. And uh, now uh, another way that you would know if your art is good is if you talk to your community and ask them and then they give you feedback. So, uh, you know, when you when you create art in a, in a silo, just basically by yourself or with you and your artist, and then d wait to reveal it until like a month or a week before your Kickstarter launches, that could end up disastrous you know people could hate it it might they might not resonate with that at all but if you kind of bring them bring your audience that you have hopefully because people want to know about your game you know if you bring your audience along and kind of show them the the art and they're like oh, i like this but can we fix that right it, it will help a lot community feedback is very useful and important but there's another element of this whole thing and that's the art direction you have to choose your art direction. The you can't just ask you know poll your community and get the right art from your community's opinion. Everybody has a different opinion, and you, you know you as or your art director has to be able to say we're going for this style and that feedback we're not going to implement because it conflicts with our vision right for a project. And it's so it's really important to have a very clear vision for what it is that you want. 
If you don't have a clear vision, then you should get one. You really need to hone in on what what you want your game to be like and um, you know how you want your game to be you know positioned as art wise a couple of great examples of this i think uh the game radlands which is sean's favorite right now <laughs> we have a uh, a great example of a 2d art style that is much less expensive than a like a heavily rendered 3d it's a lot of blues and pinks and whites and very like i mean it's like a post apocalyptic game but it's totally i feel like saying totally tubular because it's like totally 80s style art you know it's it's one of those things that uh i think they did a really great job with you know roxley games just always does an incredible job with their projects but it's a great example of extremely clear art direction you know i i i would like to you know i point to deliverance as an example of something that i find you know the art was more expensive for deliverance just the pieces were expensive but i so what, that's what it needed to be. You know, I had some uh, some other uh, publishers kind of laugh when they heard uh, the costs of the various art pieces. And it's like, no, I mean, that's that's what it needs to be. And the reason for that was because I I, I wanted to show what's possible. And, you know, at, at the time I was willing to take a loss just to make the game that I saw was possible that nobody was willing to invest into. And I'm, you know, praise the Lord that, it made its money back and, and, and then some, but yeah, it's just you, you as the art director have to decide, you know, this is the direction we want to go. That's the art style that we want to use. And, you know, as you make progress, feel free to adjust your approach a little bit here and there. You know, I was doing, you know, my artist was doing pencil sketches and I was sharing those with my community and some, in some cases they would vote on what they liked better. And, and whatnot, you know, because pencil sketches are very easy and inexpensive. I don't want to finish, you know, a thousand dollar art piece and then have my community say, I don't like that. Right. I, I want them to have seen it when it was a pencil sketch. Right. I mean, those are some ways that you can kind of try to make sure that your art is good. Um, and I'm really interested in hearing from our community to see what do you guys think? Um, go to our Facebook group, the crowdfunding nerds community. We're going to have a post about you know, just asking, how do you know if your art is good? I'd love to hear your feedback on that one. I think one thing you can do is that you need to have connections with creative people, like art, artistic professionals. I know a couple, my brother's a graphic designer. I know some other artists that I respect. And I would ask their opinion because they have trained themselves to be able to figure out what is working, what isn't working. They'll be able to know, oh, the, the color palette's off or the composition's off. Or, you know, so they're going to have, a, a, they'll be able to give you far more reasons to why something isn't working than the average person who can know that something isn't working, but they can't articulate why it's not working. Have a network of, of artists that you can lean upon for guidance and counsel who can help you make informed decisions whether what you're doing is in the right direction. And I've availed for this when I've tried to design logos and different things. I've been able to ask people I respect and that I know that they are you know, good at what they do and they can often give you some great advice. Where do you find artists? So there are a couple of places. One, the first place that everybody looks is like within their circle. And oftentimes they don't really know an artist. I'll, I'll just share kind of what I did for deliverance. This is how it worked out for me. I looked in my circles and, and you know, for a Christian game, they're really not Christian artists are, um, I'll, I'll put it this way, you know, just 
for the most part, either hardcore renaissance or abstract or amateurs. I didn't find many, you know, high quality, you know, Christian fantasy artists that could develop like epic looking angels and, and that sort of thing. So I looked in my circles and I didn't find anything. Next thing I did was I Googled it. I was looking for art and, you know, of various kinds like angel art and whatever. And, uh, found a lot of, uh, a lot of biker chicks with little angel wings on and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, was like frustrated. My wife would walk in every once in a while and she'd be like, what are you searching? Be like, I am looking for art for my game. There's like an, an angel wearing very skimpy clothing. It's kind of hard to Google stuff, but I, I found this one thing on Google images, which was, which is also a risky place to go first of all, but, um, there's you, a really you safe search. <laughs> yes, seriously. Uh, there was a really cool looking image of angels fighting demons with a giant red dragon coming out of the center of this vortex. It looked really cool. And uh, it was like totally an art style that I would be happy with. And I looked into who, who did it. And, you know, it ended up being a, a guy who was a uh, senior artist at Lego and lived in the Netherlands or something like that. And uh, it just turned out there's number one, he would, didn't have any time for my project because he's too too busy designing like the Lego elves set and the Lego Harry Potter set and whatever, which is, uh, you know, and he was just way beyond what I could afford anyway. So I'll come back to him later, but then there are other sites like ArtStation and deviant art are two very popular websites that you can go and find various art. And, uh, for the most part, they're very useful, very easy to, to search through. I, I found, a bunch of great artists there. You can also go to industry specific websites like board game geek. You can find artists there. You can find artists in various Facebook groups and contact them, find portfolios and other things like that. Adobe has their own sort of social media. It's called Behance. So you can find artists there as well. Those are people yes. who are subscribed to their, their Photoshop and illustrated and all those type of products. Oh, and then one of the best ways, first of all, I, that, that guy that, you know, kind of turned me down from Lego was like, oh, I, I know a, um, a freelancer that, that does art like this, that might be looking for work. Let me see if he's open to doing that. And he actually referred me to Dan Maynard, the artist that I use for, um, all my characters and things like that for deliverance and the, uh, you know, so he's my concept artist, but then I needed a map artist, you know, someone that could do map making. I looked at like cartographer websites and other things like that. And was just trying to find somebody that was a good fit. It was not really working very well. So I thought, why not look at one of my favorite games, uh, Lord of the Rings, Journeys into Middle Earth, had really cool looking map tiles. Like, I wonder who did the art for those map tiles. And in the rule book, it showed an artist that was credited for the map tiles. His name is Yohan Boissonette. And I looked for him and I found him and sent him a message saying, Hey, I have this game. Would you be interested in doing the art for it? Uh, for, for the, for the maps. And in short, he said, yes. And this is, you know, just send me your, your scope of work and I'll give you a price. And, um, so that's how I found that artist. So one of the best ways to look for a, a highly qualified artist that has the style you're looking for is to look at a game that you really love, find that artist's name in the rule book. And, uh, so I, I think that's personally what I would do right away next time that's pretty crazy you actually got the guy who did the artwork for the lord of the rings game to to do the maps on your game yeah yeah and it's surprisingly it's not you know 
wasn't super expensive. You know, that he clearly, you know, he, he did, he does a lot of work for fantasy flight games and things like that. So uh, he really, it was nice having an artist that really knew what they were doing, was really firm on their pricing, was timely and, and everything like that and was used to working under deadlines and, and, uh, and whatnot. So that's yeah, highly, highly recommended. And, you know, just because an artist is, their name is listed in a rule book doesn't mean they're wealthy and uh, are going to turn down work. If you've got a really cool idea that fits within their skill set, I mean, they're going to be uh, very open-minded. Uh, one great example of this is Everdell. Um, Everdell is a kind of a, what I would call an anamorph game. It's like animals that kind of act like people, you know, you've got the innkeeper who's like a badger or something like that, sweeping the floor. Of Sounds the creepy. Inn. Yeah, but it's a lot of fun though. It's a C.S. Lewis knockoff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you've got um, Andrew Bosley, I believe is the artist's name. And, uh, you know, I had I had this uh, game that kind of came across my desk that I, considering publishing, that deals with Animorphs. And I thought, you know, if I were to publish that game, I would probably use, I would look to use Andrew Bosley uh, for his art because he's does a great job with animals and anamorphs and it would be a lot of fun, very beautiful, high quality art and, and that sort of thing. So I think that that's a great way to find an artist better than definitely better than searching on the internet. The board game design lab, there's lots of designers there and a lot of them probably have you know, personal experience with artists and would be able to give a recommendation based off their experience. So that probably be a helpful place to look as well, I imagine. Yeah. And you know, but the, the tough part is that you can't just get a good artist. You need to get a good artist that is of the style that you're looking for. And if you don't know what style you're looking for, just look at games. You know, a lot of the time people play games that, you know, and you don't really look at the actual art pieces. You look at everything as a cohesive unit. And, you know, when you're looking to, you know, to try to decide what type of art direction you want, it makes sense to bust out the games that you love and actually look at the art pieces for what it is that they are say would I want similar art for mine now during this podcast you got you have you guys have discussed uh, talking about like specific art for like your game pieces and board stuff what other art pieces do listeners need as well to help promote their game besides just the actual game art itself oh so you know typical with a board game you know you're going to use your your, your box art's very important. It's probably one of the more expensive pieces alongside your um, board. If you have like a, like a central game board, for example. Um, but you know, you've got really a couple of jobs. I'll say you've got a graphic designer's job, which his job is to make the cards make sense. So, you know, it's, it's your job first, but it's the graphic designer's job to take what you've done and turn it into a professional rendition of something that makes sense to a player where a player can say, oh, I see that symbol looks like attack, and this symbol over here looks like defense, and this one over there looks like range. So it looks like the bow is ranged and I can attack, you know, for two damage or whatever. So that's that's kind of the role of the graphic designer. The graphic design is kind of invisible. If it's really, really good, nobody's going to comment on it because it's not a problem, right? They, they can see, they know what to do and so on and so forth. The art itself, that's more like flavor, you know, flavor added to, you know, to make your project seem it just, like come to life, if you will. One thing I'll say as well is you need to know the differences between the types of art. So with digital art, you have two different ways of creating it. You have what's known as raster art and vector art. 
raster art is going to be all your pixel-related stuff. So this would be anybody who's sort of painting or uh, it's got kind of like a, a painted look or um, like a photo or something like that that's using pixels. And the reason is, is that's going to be locked at a certain dimension. Then the other type of art you have is vector art. And this uses sort of lines and curves and it uses gradients and things like that. A lot of cartoon stuff would probably fall under vector art. And the, the difference is vector art, because it's mathematically calculated through these lines, it can then be scaled to any dimension. So you could put it on a business card, you could put it on a billboard. Uh, so that's an advantage if you are designing a game and you don't really know what size your components are going to be, then maybe vector art is something you should pursue. But if you want a certain, like a very specific style, then probably raster art is, is something that you're going to want to look into as well. But it's, it's handy knowing those differences and having those conversations with your artist, and they'll be able to direct you on what they do and how they can best serve you. Yeah. You know, for the most part, I'd say it's, it's really important to know what size art pieces you need. And, you know, before you actually move forward, it is possible to move forward ahead of that time. If you're fairly certain, like for myself, I, I knew my character boards needed to be of a certain size, you know, for the angels and the demons, I knew the demons were going to be like four inches tall and we actually ended up changing the orientation of a card that, you know, like a demon's card from a vertical orientation to a horizontal. And that changed the dimensions that the demons needed to be, but, or, you know, that the art pieces themselves needed to be. But because we started with the characters only, not doing a character and background, uh, you know, in that with to fit within that shape, we were able to adjust the art pieces. Uh, without too much trouble. For me, it's really important to have some sort of concept art to design from in a way. Uh, but at the same time, it's super duper important not to pay for art when that art could change. Um, or, you know, for example, you know, for me, I was, we were talking about a game you can afford deliverance. Um, it has uh, 390 cards in the base game which is a lot of cards for a $60 game. The, um, in addition to all the cardboard and stuff like that. So looking at, you know, ev if every individual card had a unique art piece, I would be about $40,000, just 390 pieces times about $100 per card. And this is, you know, like Magic the Gathering has that, uh, I want to say like two inch wide by one and a half inch tall art piece that is on each individual card. Uh, Magic pays about four thousand dollars per art piece, or or so, um, from what I was, from what I've been told, and that's because they're actual paintings. It's like an oil painting that, you know, the art pieces that I for my game, I actually found ways several different card types. I was I removed the art pieces entirely. So if you look at the prayer cards, you've got like the text on one side of the card is the art, and then the other side of the card is entire entirely you know, devoted to functionality with text and maybe a couple of like graphic design symbols, snowboarders or anything like that. I want to say we changed probably about 180 of those cards. No, actually, uh, I want to say the vast majority of them end up not requiring a unique illustration. So we had to do a unique illustration for each of our heavenly treasure items, which would be equipment. So you need like a helmet, a weapon, you know, boots, legs, or, you know, leg armor, chest armor, stuff like that. So each one of those required a different, you know, art piece. 
But we ended up saving money there because we didn't design a background for the the armor. Um, we just let the armor kind of sit and float in space, which was really cool for the the style. And then there were other cards that required a unique illustration where we were able to kind of import the character art. You know, we called them battle cards. The you know, you flip a card over and you figure out what type of bad guys you're fighting. Those cards were able to use the art from our our character art, which was cool. So another way to save money is using your art in multiple different ways. Um, so in terms of saving money, I believe you also, for your so top tier pledges, you gave backers the ability to buy original pieces. Is that correct? As far as I remember? Yeah. So I, because, so we had this idea, this crazy idea called the angel investor or archangel investor, which was basically a $1,500 pledge that I would give them a prototype that I had, as well as an original art piece from my, from just a pencil sketch art piece from my artist of whichever angel or, or, or demon or whatever that they wanted. And so that was kind of a fun thing. Uh, it ended up working out pretty darn well. It was sold within like the first 15 minutes of the so campaign. That's, that's another way where I suppose back, uh, creators can think about where they can get some of their costs back if they got fans of the the IP they've created, they can then sell or even auction different pieces, maybe autograph them. I don't know. Uh, but you, you can use them in other ways outside of just the actual board game. I suppose you NFT. Know, <laughs> I've been, dude, it's so funny, but I've been recommended by so many of my fans to, to turn our pieces into NFTs that they would buy them. And uh, so I've, I know very little about NFTs compared to what I probably should know before I put one out on the market. But um, uh, no, if, no, if and thanks is what I've heard them be described as. <laughs> but what you did as well, you put them on shirts, right? You put some of your illustrations on shirts. So there's other other ways you can, and posters is another thing you could do. Uh, like I think the about 500 t-shirts, like the deliverance box art, I think would make a great poster if you got it like stretched out, like a big poster for like a, a room, that'd be cool. So like there's other ways where you can repurpose your art. Well, I believe yep. Andrew still has a full size banner or two floating around too. Yep, an eight foot square banner. <laughs> put it behind you. I know. It is. Uh, it would. It would frighten our clients. Uh, <laughs> hello, Mister Auto Glass Shop Guy. Oh, uh, you are afraid of this angel. The angel says, "Do not be afraid." <laughs> also, another uh, great, great way of, of of getting maybe opinions from other people is conventions. I know we didn't really discuss it. This I'm just thinking because WonderCon's on the on the schedule here. WonderCon's yep. coming up this weekend. It'll be over by the time you listen to it, so I'm sorry for those who don't live in Southern California and enjoyed the first big con back in Southern California. But yeah, uh, even if you don't have a booth or don't have a set place, you can always you know take some samples around and and ask people. Uh, there's there's a lot of experts there at those conventions, especially the ones in the booths, and they a lot of people that are working in those booths pushing uh, you know their their games or products actually have an interest in such type games and. And I've I've actually approached some people about some things, and they've they've been really excited to help out, especially if it's not if they're not busy. So yeah, it's another place I think would be great uh, for sharing your ideas is throughout you know yep. conventions. Yeah, that's a great point. I think getting an expert's opinion, you know, someone who's been there before, that's uh, I guess I would call that mentorship. You know, just simply asking uh, an expert's advice is an excellent way to avoid some of these pitfalls. You know, one uh, one last thing I want to mention is a lot of people want the uh, the relationship with the artist. I, I talked about this earlier in the podcast about how you want the relationship with the artist where the artist is kind of the art director and that kind of thing. And uh, 
I find that many people will dominate the the artist with their opinion. You know, if, if you're self-publishing a game, you have a strong opinion. The likelihood is that you're, you know, you've thought through publishing and you're like, you know, I want, I just want the control over the, the, you know, to maintain the integrity of the product and, and fulfill the vision as I, as I have it. And that's fine. You know, people that do that tend to be quite obstinate and stubborn sometimes. And this can carry myself included. And uh, this can carry over in a negative way when interacting with your artist who um, oftentimes will be quite introverted and again, isn't is financially incentivized to please you and not disagree with you and 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 cause a big kerfuffle, right? So it's really easy sometimes to dominate an artist. Um, I I was going to use the word bully, but I, you know I'm not I'm not using uh, I I guess it's probably the wrong connotation. Like we're not talking about actually you know bullying somebody, but we're talking about just dominating your opinion. You're like I think it should be this way, and then of course that's the way it is because you're the one with the uh, the pocketbook. If you want your artist to share their opinion, and if you want them to to disagree with you, it's really easy to say, "Oh, I want you to be able to disagree with me." But the way that you react to disagreement, you need to actually consider what it just that that artist said. You need to really take it under consideration. And when you when you say uh, no, or when you say I want it this way instead, you should acknowledge their suggestion and and make clear that you've kind of considered that considered it and you should take their advice sometimes like more often than sometimes you should take your your artist's advice if you want that type of relationship where they give you advice and you and you appreciate them for their awesome art direction suggestions then you should take some of their advice you know and in that way it can be uh can feel much more like a partnership any other thoughts you guys have on art? We probably should talk, talk a little bit about logos. A logo versus uh, an illustration. Yeah, like a, a logo versus an illustration. So a logo, uh, coming back to this idea of vector art, logos are, are usually always vector vectorized. That means they're sort of 2D and flat, and they're able to be recognized at very small sizes and very large sizes. So a text, uh, even text can be vectorized because it's a shape essentially. Mm -hmm. So what, what isn't a logo would be like an illustrated picture necessarily. That um, might work at certain sizes, but there's a danger if you put that very small, you can't. Actually, I think, um, yeah, this Roxley. Roxley is interesting because that is, I think it is still vectorized though. Their their image looks like, it looks like vector art that could be like scaled up. Yeah, it's like this chicken. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's like this. Um, it's it's like it's it's vector art. So that, but that's just something to be aware of. And, and to be honest, that that logo would be quite challenging to see it quite small. Like even on the Stradlands box that I'm holding, it's not as clear as like the Coca Cola logo, you know, which right. is text. <laughs> and so, but just to, text. To, yeah, it's just to to be aware of of that when getting your your logo designed for your game. Yeah, I I'm. You know, the, the, the amount of logos that I see, you know, oftentimes in Facebook groups, people will say, what do you think about our logo or what option do you think is best? And their logo is very complicated with lots of layers and looking like really fancy. Sean, you actually told me, you know, you really need to be able to read your logo at the size of a stamp in black and white. So yeah. it, at black and white, you know, in black and white at the size of a stamp, if you can 
read, or if you can tell what that thing is, then I think it's, uh, you know, th those are great qualities to have in a logo. But, uh, you know, certain things like, uh, you know, there was a, uh, Bigabot games is one that I remember recently, you know, we were talking about the, or they, they were asking for suggestions for how to improve their, this robot that they, you know, had for their little mascot in, in their logo. And the robot at first had a whole bunch of small little gears on him. And those would be the size of like a tiny little mark, like a pin drop in, you know, at the size of a stamp, it just wouldn't be very easy to read. And actually on Facebook, your logo is even smaller. It's like a, a favicon. It's like 32 pixels wide by 32 pixels tall. And so, you know, to have a logo that actually makes sense at that size is um, difficult, right? Um, yeah. And so when you have like, when you require like three or four colors in a single logo, I mean, you're, you're already kind of losing me. So. Yeah, and that's the key is to try to design in black and white. And if it works, with a black and white, then it'll work with some colors thrown in. Rick, do you have any uh, opinions on logos? I actually do a lot of logos. At least, I, well, I don't make them. I, I pay people for them. But, uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> but yeah, vector art is very great because vector art can be very crisp. And so, um, you know, definitely try, you know, try to do a, a one or two tone uh, logo. Um, no more than three different colors, I think, if you're doing some kind of logo. One to two is the best. Um, and using vector graphics so you can shrink it or, or, or uh, expand it with, with keeping the clarity. That's about all I got, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's a company that I think about that had uh, that has a famous logo story. A lot of, lot of different companies, right? You've got the Nike swoosh where, where there are a lot of different stories about how that came to be. And, you know, it was like a $20 logo or something like that, I think, is, is what they ended up paying back in the day. Uh, but the CBS logo, CBS is uh has been around for a long time so if you look at the old cbs logo it actually looks like an earth that is kind of turned and and has a bunch of little layers on it and this was back in i want to say like you know 70s 80s 90s the cbs logo was very very complicated and now if you look at it it just looks like an eyeball it's like an earth with an eye in the center and uh it's black and white it's probably three shapes you know, it was a big circle on the outside, a little circle on the inside, and then the eye shape, you know, around the little circle on the inside. Surprise, um, Target hasn't sued him yet. Just kidding. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the way you described it. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, the middle circle is uh, different. So the, uh, the trend now is simple, simpler, flat. Um, if your logo is simple and flat, it is perceived that you're a company that's bigger, more capable, and that you know what you're doing versus a company that has a 3D or, or comp, we'll say complicated logo that, you know, it's perceived as smaller and more amateurish. It needs to be simple. It needs to be flat. And, you know, as in like, not, it shouldn't look 3D. It should just be flat. Um, I should know what it is when I'm looking at it. The truth is for a small business, the only people that care about your logo are you and your mom. Because you're not big enough, you're not a Target, you're not Amazon, you're not like Roxley, you're one of these companies that are just starting. In the future, it's going to matter a lot. But for now, just, you know, be okay with, with uh, I, I guess, yeah. where you're at. Well, yeah, and, and even the, the big companies, like you're saying, Amazon, they've changed their logo many times. Right. You know, it, it is what it is. You start with one, and then when you, when you actually build a brand and want to 
revisit, mm-hmm. then you revisit. Target has changed their logos many times. And then, of course, another big company, <coughs> Google, uh, yeah. did the same thing. Oh. And I just think, yeah, it's just, uh, what, what's they wrong? Themselves? Alphabet? Yeah. Alphabet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't That's, that was a while ago. Was like, you know, hey. if, if if anyone should have the title Alphabet, it should be Amazon because they're from A to Z. But, you know, yeah. that's... <laughs> <laughs> Two tech giants going. Google should be parents' companies should be called like we spy on you dot com. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's it. We're out of time for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. Feel free to join our exciting conversation on how people or how you get people to know if your art is good or not at our Fashé uh, Facebook uh, account, Crowdfunding Nerds Community, and also uh, if you're really interested, uh, post your one card game up there too. I want to see your one card. Uh, game that we're all going to put together and make and, 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 and compete. And of course, uh, if you like this, feel free to visit our previous episodes on your favorite podcasting app or go to crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you go to crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash marketing, you can get some really cool advice about what we do and see if we're the right fit for you. And that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Stay cool, stay classy, but of course, as always, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.